Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today our student pastor, Ethan Smith, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, then go ahead and grab it. Uh, We are going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 44, and yes, you did hear me correctly. We're looking at one verse in our time together, but there's so much in this verse that is spectacular. So Matthew chapter 13, 44 is where we are going to be. Let me pray, and then we will dive in. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. God, that we can sing, that we can worship you, that we can have joy in the house of the Lord. If you are crucified, you are risen, you are our joy. God, we confess, I confess that we oftentimes find our joy, our satisfaction in a a thousand little things that won't actually satisfy. And so, Lord, now I pray that as we dig into your word, God, look at this one verse and then look at so many other passages, God, that you would be our treasure, that we would see clearly, and God, the only way we see clearly is if you give sight. And so we pray that you would move in this place for the glory of Christ, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, we come into the middle of a chapter of Jesus teaching parables on what the kingdom of heaven is like, and you'll know well that a parable is a, is a story that Jesus tells in order to, to teach a lesson, right? So he's telling stories in order to teach a lesson about the kingdom of heaven. I enjoy reading parables for, I assume, the same reading, uh, reason that you enjoy reading parables, and that's, we like stories, right? We enjoy a good story, and a story gives a concrete picture to what can be an abstract truth. And Jesus does this throughout his time. And instead of, for example, instead of simply saying that, that God loves exuberantly, abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, that's true, that's right. Instead of simply stating that, he tells the, the parable of the prodigal son. The son who goes away, squanders his father's wealth, and when the son comes back, what does the father do? He embraces him, he welcomes him home. So that, that story, that picture, gives us a, a concrete understanding of the way the abstract truth of God's love portrays. So what our parable is going to teach us today, this morning, is how we should value Christ and the gospel message. How we should value Christ and the gospel message. Simply Put, if we do not value Christ, if we do not treasure Christ, if we do not delight in Christ and the gospel message, then we don't believe it. That joy in Christ, treasuring Christ above all else, is not optional for the Christian. 
It's not a, a bonus for those who are super spiritual. It's the response from the very beginning of coming to faith in Christ and it's to characterize everything about us as followers of Christ. And this is perhaps one of the greatest needs of the church today because we, we have this tendency to find our joy in other things and then to just try to put Jesus on top. Right, so we... We have our ice cream Sunday, right? We have our we have our job, we have our house, we have our vacations, we have our trinkets and we have our toys and it's all piled up and then on top we just put Jesus. He's the cherry on top. Right? That's a massive ice cream, right? Jesus is way up there. Jesus is just the cherry on top. Rather for the Christian life, joy in Christ instead of just being the the extra, the bonus, the cherry on top is to be the foundation upon which the entire building is to be built. It's not a bonus. It's not optional. It's the foundation. And trust me, this message is not just for you sitting in the pew. It is just as much for me. It is a fight. It's a fight to find our joy, our satisfaction only in Christ because we live in a world where everything is competing for our affections. And it's hard. But we know that only Christ can actually satisfy our hearts. How do we know that? Because he was the one we were made to know. So you were made to know, to love, and to worship Christ. And our passage reminds that, reminds us of that reality. So Matthew chapter 13, hopefully you are there by now. Again, verse 44, and it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. As I said a moment ago, our, our text is, is toward the end of a collection of parables that center around this theme of the kingdom of heaven. We learn many truths throughout uh, the verses in Matthew chapter 13 of what the kingdom of heaven is like. For example, we have the, the picture that those who are in the kingdom of heaven bear fruit for the king. Right? It's not that they have joy, they spring up quickly, and then they fall away. No, those who are in the kingdom bear fruit for the king. And because that's true, we also have the, the picture of what the visible church is, is like in, in this world, that there is a, a mingling together of true and false believers. And we, we're not really going to know who's who until the final judgment day, right? The wheat and the tares grow together, and in the end, God is going to separate the two. That the kingdom may begin small, like a, a mustard seed, but it's going to grow massive. That it might be small like leaven, but it'll leaven the entire lump. That it'll permeate, the gospel will permeate and affect everything that it touches. And then it continues to two different uh, parables that kind of teach the same Truth, that we should value the kingdom of God and the value that it does have. And we're going to focus on the first one today. And so 
The first question we, we should ask, we read this passage, right? The kingdom of heaven is like. The first question we should ask is, what is the kingdom of heaven? Should that not be our, our first question? And that's, a, that's an interesting question because that phrase, that, that kingdom of heaven phrase, is predominant throughout the book of Matthew. You're going to see it all over the place. But interestingly enough, that phrase isn't found outside of the Gospel of Matthew. So do we assume that it's something that's only taught in Matthew? Well, no. It's, it's certainly synonymous with the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of Christ that we see throughout the Bible. But how would we define the kingdom of heaven? And if we're going to understand what it's like, we need to know what it is. And that was, I'll be honest, that was, a, that was a tough question for me this week, trying to figure out how best to define this, this reality. I had a nice yellow legal pad sticky note thing, and I'd scribble one definition, look at it for a minute, and say, well, that's not good enough. And I'd write it out and finally de- decided on a definition that I think uh, fits well. So, so here's my definition of the kingdom of heaven. If you want to take notes, you can. If you uh, just want to listen, you can. I can give you this definition after if you'd like to write it down. But the kingdom of heaven is this. It's the realm of the reign of the triune God with Christ at the center and glad citizens from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So let me say that. Again, it's the realm, so there's a sphere, there's an area, the king has a kingdom. It's the realm of the reign of the triune God, there's our our trinity, our triune God, with Christ at the center, and glad, happy, joyful citizens from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And I, I opted here for the reign of the triune God, rather than going directly to, to Christ, because in Matthew chapter 13, 43, literally the verse right before ours, it speaks of the kingdom of their father. All right, so we cannot neglect father and spirit as we seek to honor Christ. Our triune God reigns and rules, but Christ is at the center. He's at the center. His person, his work, what he's done are at the center. And his citizens, the subjects, Right, we're citizens, not primarily of this world, but citizens of heaven. His subjects, his citizens, are those who have gladly, and that word is key, happy, joyfully trusted Christ. They've repented of their sins, and they're from all nations. I think this is a, an accurate definition of what is taking place in this passage. So this is the kingdom of heaven, the, the kingdom of of God ruled by King Jesus, happy, glad, joyful citizens from all over the world. All right? So what's it like? What's it like? Isn't that what the parable is going to, to help us with? It's like treasure hidden in a field. So how is it like a treasure? What even is treasure? All right. my, my first thought when I, when I hear the word treasure is, is a wooden chest with gold and jewels that a bunch of pirates in the Caribbean are currently fighting over. They're blasting each other out of the sea trying to acquire this treasure. But at the most, most basic level, a, a treasure is something that possesses value. It could be monetary, could be sentimental, something that's irreplaceable. 
right, for our pirate friends. Gold, jewels, has tremendous monetary value, and so they're going to continue to fight against each other until they find that famed X that marks the spot, right? But for us, it could be a little bit different. It could be your, your grandparents' wedding album filled with old pictures, and it might not be worth a whole lot to somebody trying to purchase it, but it's priceless to you. It could be that old car that you have in the garage. You worked all your life. You've spent years saving up, and you're finally able to purchase it. Now that's your treasure. And you can learn a lot about someone by seeing what they treasure. What do they delight in? And how can you tell this? What do they get most excited about? What do they get most excited about? What warms their heart? What are they ready to share with you? Hey, check this out. What breaks their heart most when you scoff at it or you reject it? And sometimes this can be tough to discern. We'll take the, the two examples that I mentioned. That, that photo album and the old car. What, what makes those a treasure? What makes a photo album full of old pictures a treasure? And it's what it represents, right? It's not the pictures themselves. It's the relationship that's shared. Like, these are my grandparents. Maybe the grandparents aren't with us any longer. And so you cherish that relationship, and so by extension you cherish that photo album. Not because it's worth a lot, but to the grandkids, to the grandchildren, that album is priceless. But what about, what about the car? What would the, the car represent? How about something like success? Maybe you grew up poor. You didn't have money to, to buy this dream car. And so you worked all your life, scraping, saving. Finally, you've reached the top. And I'm going to spend money for that car so that as I drive down the road, everybody can turn and say, wow. So the treasure might be the status of having that car. And we all have treasures. We all have things that we value greatly. We all have things that we delight in. But the question we need to ask is, does God care? Does God care about what we treasure? Does God care about what we delight in? From the text, it seems like he does. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said treasure. We're commanded in, in Psalm 37, 4, to delight in the Lord. So he obviously cares about what we treasure. And the reality is you were made, you were created to delight. You understand that? You were made to find joy. It's not wrong to want to be happy. It's a natural impulse. We all crave it. We shouldn't feel bad about Wanting to be happy, wanting to find joy, wanting to delight. But our problem is that we look for our joy, our satisfaction, our delight in places where it's not going to be found in any lasting manner. And this is the, the bottom of all sin. The root of all sin is a failure to delight in God. Right, so why do husbands or wives commit adultery, it's because they value in that moment the sexual experience more than they delight in God. Why do 
individuals drink until they get drunk or a host of other sins we could mention. It's because in that moment, what they delight in is that thing rather than God. It's the bottom of all sin. You were made to delight in God. But the problem is we don't. And God calls this evil. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. If you're taking notes, you can just scribble it down. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, For my people have committed two evils. Two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, did you, did you hear the two evils given in this text? They, they've forsaken God, the fountain of living water, that's evil number one, and they've hewed out for themselves, they made for themselves cisterns, but not just any cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So in their thirst, instead of going to a fountain that's going to have clean, pure water, they prefer their own jars that they've made that are broken and cracked and cannot hold any water. So you were made to find your joy and satisfaction in Christ, but we prefer our own treasures. Treasures that will not last, nor will they save. So the kingdom of heaven is like, a treasure because Christ is the most valuable person in the universe. That Christ is the most valuable. He alone will satisfy your deepest longings. He, will, he alone will bring joy in the midst of profound, real suffering. He will give you stability in uneasy days. He will be a rock for your feet in ever-shifting cultures. This is how it's like treasure. Because being with Christ in the kingdom of heaven is more than we could ever ask or imagine. In the kingdom of heaven, we get our treasure. We get the one who will actually satisfy. So what's the problem? Sounds pretty good so far, Pastor. Just pray us out. What's the problem? The problem is this treasure is hidden in a field. How's it hidden for us? How's it hidden from us? I think you could mention several different ways in which it's hidden, but we're going to focus on two. First, it's hidden because the work of God in redemption was a mystery until Christ showed up. To Paul in Colossians chapter 1, 26-27, speaking of the content of his preaching, talking about Christ, he says this, The mystery hidden for ages and, and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, he says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So how would God 
redeem, save a sinful humanity that has been rebelling against Him, that, that God might satisfy those rebels with His presence, with His glory. H- how is that going to happen? How do you take a, a sinful humanity that is preferring other things and redeem them that they might delight in God? The answer is Christ. Christ is the mystery revealed. According to Romans 3, 25 and 26, God put Christ forward as a propitiation, as a substitute, as an atoning sacrifice that the sins of His people would be paid for in full, that those who believe, those who have faith might be justified and God might be displayed for all to see just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So throughout the Old Testament, we we have shadows, right? We have anticipation. We have the sacrificial system. We have the temple. We have King David. We have hints. We have shadows. But Christ is the substance. The treasure of the presence of God in the kingdom of heaven is hidden. How are we going to get there? We're sinners. We're guilty before the king. How are we going to enter into the kingdom? Answer, Christ. Christ crucified, Christ risen. It's hidden because it was God's plan and not ours. And I think this is so important for even apologetic value. If you, if you read the Bible through and you read the Gospels, it becomes clear very quickly this was not our idea. We're not smart enough to come up with this plan. It's God's plan from start to finish. We couldn't come up with a crucified, risen Son of God, truly God, truly man, in order to redeem. But God did. So that in Christ, we can find our joy in Christ. That sin can be dealt with, and we can delight in God, who is both just, because sin is paid for, sin is dealt with, and the justifier, because he mercifully made away. So that's the first way that this treasure is hidden. But why else would it be hidden? Why else would it be hidden? Why do millions of people right now walk right past Christ and say, no thanks? Why do we have family members? Why do we have friends who want nothing to do with Jesus? The answer is sin. In our sin, in our preferring other things, we're blind to the things of God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says the natural person, he, he looks at the things of God, and what are they? They're folly to him. They're foolish to him because he prefers his own things. We walk right past the greatest treasure in the universe, and we don't give it a second glance. Now, where do I get the notion of blindness? That's important. One of the things Daniel and I have 
have talked about before, one of the roles of, of preaching, whoever's preaching, what we want to do is not only see you the, uh, show you the glory of what we see in a text, we want to show you how we see it. So where do I get the notion of blindness? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, In their case, in the case of those who are unbelievers, it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, so how is it hidden? We're blinded by Satan and our own sin so that when we look at Christ, when the Pharisees throughout the gospel look at Christ, they, they see Christ, but they don't see the glory. We've shut our eyes to the glory of Christ because we prefer our sin. That's strong language. Where do you get that? John chapter 3, verse 19. It says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And how do the people respond? Do they celebrate? Yes, the light is here. No. The people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So Christ has come, the light has come, but we prefer the darkness. Is this, is this not the same reality that, that Jeremiah described for us earlier? We've forsaken God, the, the fountain of living waters, and we've preferred our own broken jars that we, in our thirst, we say, I don't, I don't want the fountain, I want this broken jar. That when Christ has come, the light has come, we see the light and we say, we don't want that. We want the darkness. So the treasure is hidden because we don't want to see it. We've closed our eyes. We've covered our eyes with our hands and we're screaming out, the sun is not shining. The sun's not shining. Our sin has blinded us to what we most desperately need and to what we ultimately desire. It's foolish. It's folly. But we don't care. We don't care. We want our own way. We want our own treasures. We don't care what God has to say. I'm the one in charge here. We think our broken jars are going to satisfy We think the darkness is going to satisfy more than the light. This is our natural attitude. This is your attitude before Christ. This is my attitude before Christ. We walk right past the treasure because we believe it will not satisfy. How then does the man find it? How does anyone come to faith in Christ at all? How did you find Christ? Answer, God gives sight. God gives sight. Where do, you, where do you get that? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Two verses later. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Very reminiscent of Genesis language, right? Creating. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. So God has shown in our hearts to give the light that we might see not just Christ, but His glory. This is the same thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, is it not? John chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot what? Verse 5 says, enter the kingdom of God. But verse 3 says what? He cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the story of Scripture. That God redeeming sinners in Christ. God is the actor in Scripture. It's about Him. So in salvation, in, in the cross, in the resurrection, and in our conversion to Christ, God is the one satisfying our souls with Himself. He opens our eyes so that when we look at the treasure, we don't walk right past it, but we say, no, that is the treasure. Apart from Him, we continue to try to satisfy our souls with far lesser things. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the man, in our parable, upon finding the treasure, he does what? He immediately covered it up. I think that's interesting. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? He did this to make sure that he acquired it. He didn't want anyone, anything coming in between him and his treasure. I found it. I'm going to put it back. Nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to notice it. Nothing's going to come in between me and my treasure. He found what is most valuable, and it's not going to slip through his fingers. This shows the, the single-minded determination of those who come to Christ. That the pastor is preaching, or the gospel is, is shared, God is calling, and nothing's going to keep them from Christ. I'm going to get Christ. I'm going to have that treasure. And he's covered the treasure. Only he knows where it is now. So what's the next move? How do we get it? He sells all that he has in order to buy that field. Everything he owns, he sells. This is how valuable the treasure is. It's worth losing everything else because he knows in losing everything and selling everything, He's actually gaining far more. But did you notice how he goes and sells his possessions? It was in his joy. See that? There's no begrudging submission here. There's not, well, if i got to sell everything. No, it's joy in this moment. He's getting his treasure. He's getting what his heart most desperately wants. He says, you can have all that other stuff. You can have it. I don't want it. I want the treasure. This is what I want. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to come to faith in Christ, and it's what it looks like to be a Christian. It's looking Faith is, is looking at the world, it's looking at Christ and saying, there's no comparison, I want Christ. Now this doesn't, this doesn't mean we have this artificial happiness, a, a fake smile, a facade, a mask on. It means in the midst of suffering, we don't have this fake smile, right? House is burning down behind you. 
No, it's in the midst of deep suffering. Maybe joy looks like tears streaming down your face. But at the foundation, there's an understanding and a treasury knowing Christ is better. Christ is better, more to be desired, despite this cancer diagnosis, despite the job loss, despite the kid, the child I've prayed for for a long time, leaving the faith, abandoning Christ. Christ is still better. It's saying with Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It says, for, for His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And that was really bad. That was really terrible. I really hate that I lost it. No, he says, no, and I count them as rubbish, garbage. Why? In order that I might gain Christ. So Paul, this man in Matthew 13, they, they look at their lives, they look at their possessions, everything they've staked their life on and says, there's no comparison, give me Jesus. Church, what we gain in Christ is worth infinitely more than anything this world has to offer. Do you believe this? Do you believe that that's the case? Is your life characterized by that type of joy? A joy that cannot be shaken or taken away. There's a reason why we come together. There's a reason I asked Jesse to do the house of the Lord as a song this morning. There is to be joy in the house of the Lord. It shouldn't be the case that we come together and worship and we could be stone-faced. There's joy in knowing Christ. If there isn't, if there's no joy in Christ in your life, it's a problem. And the problem might be, do you lack joy? Because you're, you're trying to keep some of your possessions over here while still gaining the treasure over here. And Christ, I, I want you, but I really, I really like this. I really like church to operate in this way. I really like this habit that I've had for years. I can't really break it. Why would I want to break it? So why, why can't I just keep some of this over here and I'll, I'll have you over here? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, that no one can serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one, hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. You've got to choose. So if you want the world, take the world. Which forfeit Christ. If you want Christ, if you want the joy that comes with knowing, loving, worshiping Him, then be willing to give up all else. Christ might not call you to give up everything like he did uh, the rich young ruler. He might not call you to sell everything, but he might. But in either case, to be a Christian, to follow Christ, is to renounce the world. It's no option. But the beauty of the gospel is that in gaining Christ, and having Christ and possessing Christ, what our soul most desperately wants and needs, that's not enough for you in the moment. We have them for eternity. So that our infinite God, we're finite, He's infinite, which means what? It means He's inexhaustible, which means what? In eternity, 
there's always going to be more joy to have. In heaven, it's not going to plateau at some point, and this is the level of happiness, and you're stuck here forever. No, there's always something new to learn about God. There's some new joy to discover in Christ. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, so that in the coming ages, it's plural, in the coming ages, He, God, might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in eternity, we will experience the joy of experiencing the glory of Christ and glorifying Him for eternity. Do you realize that, that is, that's the treasure? That's the treasure that's offered to you in the gospel. One final thought and then an application. Final thought. Does focusing on our joyful response to believing in Christ make us the center of the gospel? Does the fact that I've spent half hour, probably plus, emphasizing our joy in Christ, our joyful response to Christ, then turn the gospel so that I'm the center, that Jesus is simply a means to an end? question to ask. And my answer to that is no, it does not, and here's why. You bring honor to your treasure, whatever it is, by how much you enjoy it, by how much you value it. Therefore, in our joy in Christ, by our delighting in Him, by our having joy in Him, we're displaying for the whole world to see how glorious He is. So when we seek joy in Christ, the object, the treasure, is not my joy, it's Christ. So in my having joy, delighting in Christ, what am I doing? I'm glorifying Christ. I'm lifting high Christ. And in lifting Christ high... His death, His resurrection, in lifting high Christ, and glorifying Christ, in that moment, I also receive back what? Joy. And the more joy I have in Christ, the more I glorify Christ, the more I glorify Christ, the more joy I have in Christ. It's a beautiful cycle. And seeing that in the writings of a few different individuals, and especially in the Bible from start to finish, has revolutionized the way I he gets the glory, as he should, and we get joy. Final application. What should we do with this treasure that we've found hidden in the field? Should it remain covered? No. Our job is to share this treasure with everyone around us. That they might experience the joy of knowing Christ. 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings 7 gives an interesting parallel. It's very interesting. Verses 3 through 9. Again, taking notes, just jot it down. I'll read it. 2 Kings 7, 3 through 9 says this. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. They said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? 
If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. So come now, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. They don't have a lot of great options, right? Stay here, we die. We go in the city, we die. If we go to the Syrians, maybe they let us live or they kill us. We're going to die either way. So what did they do? So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight, and they abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and, and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So like these leopards, lepers, we've discovered a treasure that we desperately need. They are in the midst of a famine. What do they need? They need food. They need drink. We're in darkness, in desperate need of a Savior who gave his life, rose again, in order that those who believe might have life. If it was a day of good news because they found food for the city, how much better is it for us that we have good news, that we have the gospel to share in a world that desperately needs it? So our role, our job is to find our joy in Christ. To display that for the world, to see that your satisfaction is not in your house, your career, your sports team, your family, whatever. It's in Christ. And then you share that with others. Inviting them to treasure the Christ that alone will save and that alone will satisfy. And may God find us faithful in finding our joy and delight in Him and being faithful to share with others. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, God, that we can have joy in Christ. That is a blessing that You have made us to find our delight. It's not wrong, but God, You've made us to delight in You. We're not going to be satisfied unless we find our satisfaction in You. So help us, Lord. There's people in here that needs Christ Maybe for the first time, Lord, they need to see. I can't do that, but you can. And so we pray that you would make that clear. That you would show them the folly of everything they are they're seeking and the treasure that is Christ. God, for the Christian in here, 
that feels stagnant, that feels far from you, I pray that you would restore and renew in them a joy in Christ, who is our treasure. And Father, may we be faithful to share this with those around us, to find our joy, our satisfaction only in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.